Hey, welcome back to Discourse from the Big Chair. I'm Steve, and with me is Stephen Coleman. Hello. And if you're wondering, this is the Internet's most famous, most prominent, most wonderful, uh, and probably only Tears for Fears podcast. Although if you're out there, let us know. Yeah, seriously. I, you know, we have been doing this for a while, and obviously episodes are sporadic because after the initial run, we're kind of limited, you know? Are they going to tour? Or is there news about a new album? Is there going to be a new album? And that has sort of dictated our cadence for this podcast. And we have, we've powered through technical difficulties and, and COVID and all kinds of ridiculous things that brought us to this point. And it's funny, Stephen Coleman, because for I don't even know how many years, we've sort of like made the end of this, of each episode of this podcast, me saying, so when's the new album going to come out? And it was always, I don't know, or I think it's going to be in a few months, or I bet we'll hear something, or just all these ups and downs. And we have made it to a point that I did not think we would actually ever make it to. We're here. There's a new Tears for Fears album. <laughs> how, how do you feel right now? Uh, I don't know. I, feel <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, so to contextualize when we started this podcast, again, we started it because you are a Tears for Fears mega fan, and by my estimation, maybe the biggest fan, and I knew nothing about the band and the idea was you introducing me to them. And I've come around and now I'm a fan. And I, I don't know. I mean, th this this had to be like the most anticipated album of the last like 20 years for you. And, I, and I'm not sensing the overwhelming excitement. So talk to me about how you're feeling right now. I feel like I got to play therapist to you. Well, I think that that's just it. It is probably the most anticipated album of my life. It's been... The length of waiting for this new album has been almost half of my life at this point. That's, a little less, a little less than half, but not much. For all intents and purposes, half your life. Yeah, because, I mean, Everybody Loves a Happy Ending came out in 2004, right? Right, and that was the biggest album release I'd ever experienced. I was way too young to experience any other previous Tears for Fears album releases. The closest I got was being you know 16 or whatever when 9 11 happened mm -hmm. that's when roland orzabal's first solo album came out uh kind of a muted response obviously i i would say so yeah that's understandable given the circumstances so yeah everybody loves happy ending was like my first experience with getting a new tears for fears album and being involved in that album cycle and it was a very disappointing at least as far as like critical and commercial reception so i had another 18 years to wait after that and not knowing if it would ever happen we've been at this for seven years ourselves with this podcast which is insane yeah <laughs> it's it's wild to think we've been doing this for for that long and anyone who's been oh go ahead sorry just started in preparation for whenever this new record was going to come out thinking like oh we'll do this for like another year maybe yeah, this was kind of the, the point that we were, that everything was building to. And yeah, it's it's wild to think we've been at this for that long. 
especially because if anyone has listened to the full series or if you're going through it for the first time, you're like, well, damn, the audio quality hasn't gotten any better. So <laughs> Though we were supposed to be together today again. We are. We were. Oh, which yeah. is too bad because I look fantastic today. Yeah, I, you know, and I, I look and feel fantastic. I just had a, a, a little scare because, you know, we are still living in the, the tail end of a global pandemic. And wouldn't you know, I spent some time with a friend of mine and he texted me last night and was just like, hey, uh, may have been exposed to COVID. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> Turns out today he is positive for COVID-19. So... Uh, yeah, here we are. I'm fine. I tested. I'm good. Old, old negative Steve is what they call me. Uh, so I, I'm fine for now, but we'll see. I, I could be horribly diseased and, uh, one wayward sneeze could kill my co-host. And at, at least you can die with a new Tears for Fears album, Steven. Yeah, well, that's, oh, that's the only thing I was waiting for. That's it. That's it. Yep. Could all just... I survived yeah. just for this. Yeah. That's like, it feels like a t-shirt you should be wearing. Okay. Well, you know, we, we've talked about how we've gotten to this point and there has been an interesting cycle around this album. And this kind of started the, the discussion of this for us started when they dropped that greatest hits record a few years ago, more than a few years ago at this point. And they did have a few new tracks on there, which have, sort of found their way back onto this album. And, you know, going from that greatest hits CD to the tipping point, do you feel like there has been any sort of like course correction or significant change? Or did those two tracks they shared, which were uh, Please Be Happy and Stay, right? I uh, love you, but I'm Oh, love you, but I'm lost. I'm sorry. But we we have talked about Please Be Happy before, mm -hmm. because right around the time they were touring with Hall Notes, Roland Dorsable just dropped this song onto SoundCloud, which was essentially, I guess, the demo for Please Be Happy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And obviously, we'll get to that when we talk about it a little bit later on. Um, so that was kind of like the first drop of like a new song, but we didn't really know what it was at the time either. Yeah, we weren't sure. I was like, oh, is this a demo? Is this part of an album? Is it a one-off thing? But what are we listening to, basically? And it's five years ago, five years ago. And at the time, they were working with some different producers. Is that also correct? Yeah, and uh, like Please Be Happy was written with uh, Sasha Skarbek, who I guess is a, is a well-known producer, modern producer, although... Uh, when I say modern and I say something like uh, he wrote Wrecking Ball by Miley Cyrus, that was almost 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, so modern that's how James. long they've been working on this. Yeah. Um, and he also wrote You're Beautiful by James Blunt. And I don't know when I <laughs> when I first heard they were working with him and I kind of looked at his um, body of work, I was just sort of like, oh, no. Mm -hmm. But I was being positive about it because. Yeah. You know, that's the end of the day. It's just somebody in the room listening to them. And I think that's why this relationship worked the best for them, because I don't think that Mr. Scarbeck was very pushy or trying to push them into a direction they didn't want to go in. Whereas like any other producer they've worked with, and they haven't talked about it who specifically that much, but I know they worked with Jack Knife Lee 
Uh, I know they worked with um, the guy from Foster the People, hmm. which I don't think any of that materials see the light of day publicly. Um, and then obviously um, with Rule the World Greatest Hits soundtrack or soundtrack, Jesus, uh, compilation, they worked with Bastille and had a song that sounded like a lot like Bastille trying to sound like <laughs> Tears for Fears. Oh, that sounds like something out of a nightmare. <laughs> and when that song came out five year, almost five years ago, at the time, I was kind of excited just because it sounded like something contemporary that could like break them into the market again. But as it's aged, yeah, I um, it sounds like them trying to be somebody else. Yeah. And that's kind of what they've been talking about ad nauseum in the various interviews Tears for Fears have been doing since uh, the launch of the uh, marketing campaign for this new album. And uh, I guess we have five songs remaining from the uh, Sasha Scarbeck sessions and five songs that are new-ish, uh, at least written during 2020, during the pandemic, and are the first songs, I guess, that they've been saying in interviews it was the first time that Roland Orsbull and Kurt Smith sat down with acoustic guitars since they were teenagers. And I thought that that was kind of like, well, no, like they wrote Everybody Loves a Happy Ending like that, too. That's all they could talk about. <laughs> um, but to be fair, actually, they wrote Everybody Loves a Happy Ending, the entire album that way. But they also had Charlton Pettis in the room. And even though he's still their collaborator and producer, you know, the first track, No Small Thing, is the first time Roland Orsbull and Kurt Smith have probably sat in a room and written a song together, just the two of them, without an intermediary in the room. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the uh, their partnership seems to be stronger than it's ever been, which is nice and cool. And, um, well, I suppose we'll get into it a little bit more as we... Yeah, I, I, I'm glad that you mentioned... No small thing. And I think that's kind of a good jumping off point uh, to discuss the song. And, and also, you know, the, the fact that these guys sat down and started to figure out the album on an acoustic guitar, because no small thing is like, it's the only tears for fears song that I can think of as the non-expert here. And correct me if I'm wrong, that is, is kind of driven by acoustic guitar. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, to be at least totally driven by acoustic guitar and sort of have almost this like um, cowboy campfire, almost country mm -hmm. feel to it. They've never written a song that I would say has sort of like a classic country feel to it. Um, Pulling a Cloud, which is a bonus track from Everybody Loves a Happy Ending, is a very acoustic driven number. But this is way different. This is way grander. This is... They're experimenting a lot here. Yeah, it, it is kind of shocking, especially as a as a kickoff track from an album that people have been waiting eighteen years for, or yeah. whatever. Uh, it, it's it's kind of wild to, to to hear it kick off this way because it starts off in a way that I think most Tears for Fears fans or people that are familiar with the band like they would not instantly recognize it when you hear that opening chord you're like oh, what who is this you know 
Yeah, it's a big statement. Um, and I think sort of like a F you to their uh, previous management who, while they were doing all this, like writing with other artists and producers, they have a management company that's telling them, well, maybe you don't even need to come out with a new album, but you definitely can't release new material. That's just by the two of you. Like you need help. Mm -hmm. It it really. Yeah. Yeah. And, And that's kind of frustrating because obviously they've sold a gazillion records. I don't think anyone involved in the music industry or, you know, music fans would argue that they're two of the greatest pop songwriters of all time. And they have a very specific, unique sound too. That's why it's kind of interesting. Like, I don't think you hear a lot about, oh, Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith going in and producing giant pop hits for other bands, because there's something very idiosyncratic about what Tears for Fears does. So yeah, it is, it is kind of, kind of a cool statement that they were able to just, I don't know, start a song this way, kick off an album this way. And uh, yeah, it feels like a little bit of an FU. And also, it's very intriguing. But the way the song builds, by the time it, it goes from what I would say is completely foreign as a Tears for Fears song from that first chord to kind of growing into the grand, soaring, orchestral, synth-driven everything pop music that Tears for Fears is, right? Yeah, it's a... It's a wild ride. I still, I mean, I know we talked about the song last episode, but it's still, uh, yeah, it's kind of like they're playing a trick on you a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, like, they still have more in them as far as, like, one more things to say. And, like, they say in the lyrics, one more song to sing. So they. <laughs> I'm uh, sort of stumbling over my words a little bit. I apologize, but uh, yeah, this is um, it's a great statement. And uh, yeah, we go from Campfire Cowboy to this is definitely Tears for Fears. Yeah, in four and a half minutes. Yeah, and it's it really does. It has that kind of dense instrumentation that I I really appreciate from Tears for Fears. And I, I hate to be the guy that says this because people who say this, I want to roll my eyes, but feel free if you're listening right now, get get ready. You can roll your eyes at me. It's a good headphone album, especially if you have really good headphones, just because being able to hear all the different layers that are going on in a song like No Small Thing or The Tipping Point or, you know, we're going to talk about End of Night later, which is another great example of this. There's so much going on here. And there's, and there's so many little things where it's like, I don't even know what's making, like, is uh, what is making that sound <laughs> entirely. And it's an album that's kind of jam packed full of that. And I, I just, I really appreciate it because they, they do, they go for these. It, it's not just four different instruments playing together or something like that. It, it really, it feels like a painting. Everything is sort of blended and complementing each other. And it's, uh, it's really beautiful. And I think no small thing is, is a good example of that. It also has Roland Orzabal's trademark kind of like theatrical delivery. You know, I, I think when we were driving to Detroit, you and I, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about this song and I mentioned that there's, there's not another pop singer in the universe that can sing a line like, 
It's your sweets from the candy man. Like, no, who the, who could say that? No one can say that and have me take them seriously. But Roland Orzabal can do it because he's who he is. But seriously. <laughs> yeah, and I, I totally agree. I would laugh that off. Like, imagine if, like, Chris Martin from Coldplay did that. Yeah, no, it's not, not work at all. It's, like, impossible. Even Bono, I don't know, like. Yeah, just unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> it's it, it doesn't work for anybody else, and that's part of what makes this band special. And, and again, I think it's a good way to kick off the album. I think it could have been a good way to end the album as well. Mm-hmm. But I think that they needed, just like with most of their albums, as at least as Roland and Kurt being collaborators, starting with songs from The Big Chair, the first song always has to be some sort of statement. Yeah, and uh, that's exactly what the role of this song is, and uh, I think it does it very well. Agreed, agreed. And then this transitions nicely into what I think is is one of the high points of the album. I uh, believe that was also the first single, and I think a lot of other bands probably would have used this as the first track on the album too. But hey, let's let's talk about the the title track. Let's talk about the tipping point. Oh man, uh, yeah. Like I said, this is classic Cat in Tears for Fears. I think that this is going to be a song that's going to be, if not this entire album, at least this song is definitely going to be sealed to their legacy. Um, thematically, uh, you know, both lyrically and as far as like the sound, I think it sums up the album the best. Yeah. Um, obviously, a lot of these songs are about grief, and this is the song that sort of kicks off that the very statements we have about grief, specifically Roland Orzabal's wife. Um, this is a little bit more vague lyrically compared to another song we're going to get into a little bit later, but this is uh, kind of like what the hurting does for the hurting. This is what the tipping point does for the tipping point. This yeah. is giving you an almost an intro to like what the rest of the album is going to be about. Mm-hmm. So my, my hot take, which I think most tears for fears fans will, will groan at is the first time I heard the tipping point, I noticed, you know, a, a lot of critics have been comparing it to the hurting. And I think there's a lot of validity in that comparison. My initial like knee jerk reaction to this album is just the the emotion and and the vibe for lack of a better term of the tipping point actually reminds me a little bit of like 90s tears for fears roland solo tears for fears just because those albums have a lot of kind of anger and and pessimism and cynicism rolled into them and this album it, it does have moments of cynicism but i i think some of that anger and sadness comes from a different place, obviously his wife passing away, but it feels a lot more just valid and grounded and deep and mature on this album. So I, I think, I mean, you can draw that through line almost, um, but it, it really does kind of show just how introspective of an album this is too, because like you mentioned, they, they could have just gone and, done whatever with pop producers but to make something this personal especially the midst of a horrific personal tragedy like the death of your wife is i mean it's it's admirable to say the least 
Well, and especially coming out of what their previous studio effort was, everybody loves a happy ending. That's a very it's the you know it's their Britpop album essentially, and mm-hmm. it's very almost optimistic and a little lighthearted, um, which people probably weren't expecting at the time, probably still wouldn't be expecting now, just based on kind of how history is written about Tears for Fears. Um, but I remember where everybody loves a happy ending coming out. That I thought that that was like the perfect way to to bookend their career. Starts with the hurting, which is, you know, teen angst coming from difficult childhood and coming to grips with that in your late teens, early 20s and still being kind of sad about it to finally transcending that as adults who are in their late 30s, early 40s. And felt like, yeah, they find they earned that they earned the right to be happy. And then we yeah. get to the tipping point where now they're in their late 50s, early 60s. And that's like, oh, shit, life still can suck even after you've succeeded as an adult because there's more tragedy and there's more hard times ahead. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a sobering reminder that, you know, maybe things get better, but also you just get new kinds of shitty things in your life. So, I mean, there's things that, that sucked when you were in your early twenties or a teenager or whatever that aren't going to suck now as an adult, but there's things you have to deal with as adults that it are fucking awful in different ways. So, you know, that's a nice thing to think about. <laughs> Hope you're enjoying this podcast, everyone. <laughs> Things don't get better. They just get different. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's life is cruel. It's interesting because three of the first four tracks on this album are actually the first three singles that we discussed on the, on the last episode of the podcast. And I mean, for me, they've they've kind of they kind of change and they warp when you listen to them in the context of a full album as opposed to just standalone singles. Yeah, and that was a difficult thing, and still even now, um, just because having lived with those songs for such a long time and listening to them for a long time, it made the album the first few listens for me at least feel slightly incomplete, and it just sort of washed over me, mm-hmm. just because I was so familiar with those songs already. Um, and that's not really a knock on the album as a whole, but, um, for my listening experience, it definitely changed it. Yeah. I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I think this is an album that I'm going to grow to appreciate more as time goes on. But my initial impression was just kind of like a, huh, because not because, you know, the, the quality's not here. Cause that's certainly not true. These are, you know, it's a solid album, but you glance at this track list. You got 10 songs, okay? We look at the first four tracks. Three of the first four tracks, No Small Thing, The Tipping Point, Break the Man. These are all singles. Please Be Happy is the song that was previously released. And then End of Night was from that same session. And I, uh, was End of Night available or, or... Or not End of Night, I'm sorry, Stay. Stay is the song I'm thinking of. The 10th track. And that was on the... Everybody or everybody, uh, the uh, rule of the world compilation, rule of the world compilation. Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I mean, we can talk about more when we get to the actual song, but if anything, it makes me annoyed that that song was on the greatest hits compilation. I wish mm-hmm. I hadn't have ever lived with that song until it was on this album in the form that it's in. Yep. 
Yep, I I agree. I agree. So essentially what we're getting here is one, two, three, four, five songs on a 10-track album that we're already kind of familiar with. Right. And it, it does. It makes that first li- listen kind of interesting. Part of that is just kind of the cycle of of how albums are released now and how we went from, I don't know, music was very single-driven for a very long time, and then there was kind of a shift, I would say, um, maybe like 30 years ago towards more album-driven music. And then that kind of peaked, and now we're back. Well, it's singles time, all the time. And I think the dominance of digital music has made that sort of how we consume things now. So with that... A lot of times you get an album and because of the way you've consumed those singles one at a time, when you get the album, the full meal, it feels like you've kind of already eaten. I'm going to extend my food metaphor. (laughs) It's a great metaphor because that's how I've felt after the first listen, especially because I maybe on initial listening wasn't blown away by some of the tracks I had not yet heard yet, with the exception of at least one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's 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 been a an interesting journey to say the least. But hey, one of those new songs that we didn't know before is "Long, Long, Long Time," which I mean, kind of a banger, right? I was curious how you were going to feel about this one. Uh, I deliberately didn't even bring it up when we were talking about it when we were just hanging out in person, like on a fourteen-hour car ride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically, so you could hear my feelings on it. Yeah. Okay, so I, I, just just to give you my initial thoughts, it's another one of these songs where I think it's it's very dramatic. I love 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 the piano, and I also feel like it's got that little bit of modern pop sensibility in it, just sprinkled throughout it. Some of the synth sounds they use. And I like it because it feels like I, I wouldn't call it the, you know, the essence of what this album is necessarily, but it does a nice job of kind of grounding the album firmly in the present, but you never lose sight of the fact that this is a Tears for Fears record. Yeah, and it's um, throughout the album, we're not going to get to all of them today, but there's a lot of especially musical Easter eggs and lyrical Easter eggs in this album. And the first time I heard long, long time, it's sort of washed over me a little bit. I think, and some of that just is going to waiting for this record for almost half my life. And then finally getting it, listening to it the first time, your expectations are so high, or at least mine were, it's it's ridiculous. Like, it's almost impossible to overcome those. But this song has really grown on me a lot. Um, and as far as, like, lyrical Easter eggs, like, it sort of starts with these lyrics that are almost like cliches, just the higher the mountain, the harder the fall. Like, okay, well, we all know that. Mm-hmm. But then it's just kind of, then he starts saying, we've been spinning in circles for so long and we haven't been honest or clever or sure for a long, long, long time. Like that almost describes probably the process of them putting this album together. Like they haven't felt very sure about themselves or just kind of spinning in circles. And they've been gone for a long, long, long time. Yeah. 
and this is another one too where I could see the album kicking off with this because and it's it's perfect coming after two singles that we were already familiar with because it's it's this track that is actually fresh and new that we hadn't heard before and it's it is it's very candid with the lyrics yeah and it's um sort of kicks off the uh kurt smithiness of this album which we haven't had this much kurt on a tears for fears album since the debut oh baby i'm drowning in kurt and i love it drink deep from the waters of kurt smith baby I think I have a soft spot for Kurt jams. I d- <laughs> something about it. I just, I love it. Yeah. And, uh, and I know like obviously Roland co-wrote the song, but I don't really hear him that much on this song. I mean, it's just those, but it's those weird, uh, you know, time signatures and rhythms that are kind of a hallmark of that tears for fear style that definitely show up in this song that I really appreciate and yeah. appreciate more with every listen. Yeah, and this is kind of a little Kurt Smith break, right? Because we've got this block, uh, tracks three and four, long, long, long time, and Break the Man, which we discussed on the last episode of this podcast. But I, I think I may have declared Break the Man the most Kurt Smithy song of all time. It's just like, the moment I heard it, I was like, this is very Kurt Smith. And then you're like, well, actually, he completely wrote the whole thing. <laughs> I have to think, I mean, maybe they were intending for this to be on the album, but I almost wonder if this maybe started out, you know, Kurt's talked a lot in interviews about how, you know, he thought about leaving Tears for Fears when they were going to release this album with all their superhero producers or whatever the hell they were, because he just didn't think it was honest. He didn't think it was Tears for Fears and he was ready to leave the project leave the band altogether. Um, so I wonder if like this song started off as like, all right, well, I'm going solo again. And definitely was written with the backdrop of like Trump, uh, Trump presidency and just toxic masculine culture sort of pervading that whole period of, well, still pervading, but when it was this, major major talking point you know throughout 2017 2018 2019 basically as long as he was in office mm-hmm. kind of nice I, I guess are we talking about break the man now yeah we are <laughs> i'm a little stepped up i have major allergies folks uh just a little bit of the hay fever oh uh, spring is no joke for us allergy boys let me tell you no and it it started a. Uh, just a few years ago for me. I bet everybody's really interested in that right now. Yeah, when you get old and you suddenly become more allergic to stuff, it's it's good. You know, people are calling us the Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith of Hay Fever, so. I would take a full Hay Fever album, concept album from those guys. Where's, where's my Hay Fever album? Yeah. You know, it's like when people say, when was the last time you could breathe through your nose efficiently? And I say, it's been a long, long, long time. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Uh so my first experience listening to this album all the way through, I actually got home from work and it was like almost midnight and I mm-hmm. flipped on the TV and Tears for Fears were on Colbert that night. And I got home just in time to catch their performance of Break the Man. And uh, that was really cool. And then as soon as that was done, 
turned on my phone to Spotify, and the album was already waiting. That's beautiful. It's a wonderful that's, night. Lit some incense. Had a had a little sour beer. It was great. That's. I mean, that's fantastic. Also, yeah, I guess shout out to the Pacific Time Zone. I don't. I don't know why. Why did it come out early? Like, where the what? What's, I think it's actually the East Coast. Like, I think it just came out East Coast midnight. And since they don't give a shit. Oh, they don't give a shit. It's like, oh, well, that's Eastern time zone, right? I don't know if it's... Everybody can have it. <laughs> if, it's east of, if it's east of Colorado, I guess it's fine. Right, just give it to them. Nice. They could use it. <laughs> what, a, what a beautiful surprise. Can you imagine if you would have had to wait until the stroke of midnight and, and you just had to refresh? That's so nice. I was prepared. <laughs> Man. Uh that's that's beautiful. I'm glad you had that experience. I just there's things that I want for you in life, Stephen Coleman, and and that was one of them. Just a, a nice evening with a brand new Tears for Fears album. That's so nice of you to say that. Thank you. <laughs> why do we uh, why don't we talk about a song I don't like as much? <laughs> let's let's get into it. Oh my gosh! Let's talk about my demons. I shouldn't be too hard on this. I'm gonna let it play a little here. Roland Orzabal says, get off my lawn. I, <laughs> okay, I wanna say, I, I think a lot of people like this song. This is this is the new, so we talked about, like you start off with these these two great singles, and then you get into the Kurt Smith block, which I'm a big fan of. And then when you get to tracks five and six, this is called the you're losing Steve a little bit <laughs> section. My Demons is a fun song. I'm going to say that. It's fun. Had fun with it. But it is like, it, it is one of the, the only things on this album where I can say this sounds like a band that's been around for 40 years recording a new record. My Demons is that song. This is like the dad jam. And this does come out of those sessions, um, specifically the Sasha Scarbeck sessions. I mean, I'm sure they retouched it, retooled it a little bit. I don't know how much they actually did, because I'm sure this probably doesn't sound that much further away from the original draft when they recorded this probably like in 2016. This was the song that uh, I was probably looking forward to hearing the most, because that title my demons had been around as a rumored song title for a very long time so much so that i thought maybe we would hear it when we saw them in 2017 with hall notes mm -hmm. maybe they'll just drop a new song in the set and i guess there were rumors that they were sound checking the song i don't know how true that is but um yeah i was really looking forward to it and it's it, it's the lyrics that I'm just not quite on board with. I mean, some of them are fun and just kind of like silly and almost throwaway. And I like those moments, mm -hmm. but just the they'll always find you and your cell phone on his thing. Yeah. Like, it just seems like I'm back in, you know, grad school in the media studies course where all the, uh, you know, fuck boys are defending Edward Snowden and I don't know that's a very <laughs> personal specific example I won't name names but um I yeah I I don't know I it's 
it, it is it, it like it's fun it has this nice kind of like driving almost galloping rhythm to it and it's a fun production i really like the sound oh crunchy crunchy synth and i like my sense to crunch don't get me wrong but yeah it's it's just the lyrics that totally kind of swerving into cringy territory for me um I, and and the delivery of them too it it doesn't feel ironic or as fun as the song is like it, it kind of betrays the song in a lot of ways and tears for fears i mean they they thrive <laughs> with sadness frequently but once they kind of head over into the realm of of anger like punching outward anger it never quite hits like it's it's never believable and going back to my earlier comments about why there's moments on elemental and Raul and the kings of spain that that don't click with me i think that's part of it right yeah this song is definitely of that solo roland era like this would have fit in on either one of those albums or even on a his solo album, Tom Cat Screaming Outside, um, which I can be a fan of those moments. I mm-hmm. do kind of like uh, Angry Roland, but Angry Roland, not to be ageist or anything like that. I don't want to come off that way, but this just, this song specifically, lyrically, it is. It's kind of like Get Off My Lawn. Um, like, I don't understand these new technologies and. It's like, I don't know. I think you do. I think you're better than that. I think you're. Yeah. Very smart guy. Very talented man. And maybe that's not even the message of the song. I think could. I think he's even said in interviews that it's sort of almost like a throwaway song. Mm-hmm. But the reason they put it on is just because it has that driving groove to it. It's a very in your face electronic song kind of shows you what they can still do in that department. Um and the transition from Break the Man, which is this very like, hey, let's be more gentle. Let's be more understanding. Let's not be shitty dudes. And then we go straight into a shitty dude song. <laughs> the first yeah. lyric is, I am the demolition man. I'm like, oh, OK, <laughs> so we're not this is fighting kinda, the patriarchy anymore. No, this is kind of like. Tears for Fears 2022 does Primal Scream 2002. This is their like evil heat, essentially. Meaning the band Primal Scream, right? Yes, the band Primal Scream, not not. Yeah, I forgot. I forgot the Primal Scream therapy tie in with Tears for Fears. The the Scottish band Primal Scream of Screamadelica fame. Uh, yeah, great band. Love them. Love them. Love them. And uh, yeah, it's it just, I don't know. It's, it's not a bad song. It's not, I don't think this is going to be a, a Hall of Famer TFF jam. I don't know. I think a lot of people really love it, though. Like, I could see this being, a, I don't know, I could see it popping live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just based on the feedback I'm seeing from other fans, it's definitely, uh, it's a favorite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it never overstays its welcome. Like, it's a very curt, no pun intended, three minutes and we're on to side B. Now this, this episode that we're doing right now is the most likely to elicit anger from tears for fears fans. I think in terms of my opinions, because at least with the earlier stuff where I was just like, eh, I don't know. I had the cover of, I wasn't like a super fan and I wasn't familiar with the band, but now we've been doing this for seven years. I'm a big fan. And so, yeah, 
they can come for me now. Oh, I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I'm really curious to see what this sounds like live. I'm assuming they'll play it, but we'll we'll see when we see them in June, a couple months. But yeah, uh, looking forward to hearing it live and see if anything changes. But, you know, if it's a little undercooked for me, not my speed, that's fine. It's still got a nice beat to it, but... Sock Rivers of Mercy, and I, I gotta. I'm gonna. I'm gonna play just just the just the opening here. I want. I want to give the people a little little flavor, a little bit of flavor. If you're wondering, that's not outside of my house. That's the beginning of this song. Well, the streets have started burning. There's trouble in the town. Where are those wind chimes? Are they coming in? Yeah, they're coming. You gotta wait for them. Oh, with the squeeze box and the wind chimes. Oh, boy. Okay. I don't like this song. This is the only song in the album where I'm like, absolutely no. There's a few other points here where I'm like, eh, maybe not for me. But, only one where I was like, absolutely not. And I have my reasons, but I am also... Deeply, deeply confused because this seems to be a critical favorite and perhaps a fan favorite. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about uh, Pitchfork, the once hip, cool, now, I don't know what it is. <laughs> they're the cranky old dude saying, get off my lawn now. Yeah, yeah, they used to be the vanguard and now they're the, the gatekeepers. This is, you know, that's what happens eventually. But they still, I mean, they still hold some weight, and I don't know if they're the tastemakers they once were, but they, they kind of have their hands, their fingers on the pulse of, of what's going on musically. And to their credit, they have some pretty solid writers who I think give a lot of thought to the albums they're reviewing. So it's not like throwaway stuff. And in their positive review for The Tipping Point, they talk about Rivers of Mercy. I'm gonna actually. I'm just gonna read this paragraph here. Uh, so they they talk about my demons, which they say that's uh, you know it's just a clear throwback to their Chinese '80s synth pop. They say, despite these fleeting moments of ire, the tipping point is grounded by a sense of acceptance, a realization that life goes on and is worth living after periods of grief. Nowhere is that clearer than on Rivers of Mercy, a lovely calming ballad that finds solace within images of flowing water washing away pain. Here, Tears for Fears intertwine the idea that run throughout the tipping point, emphasizing grace and growth in the face of trauma. It's the centerpiece. I'm going to say that again for emphasis. It is the centerpiece of an album that feels like the most fully realized record Tears for Fears have ever made. A culmination of the musical and emotional themes they've held dear since their inception. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on there. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Okay, thematically, I'm, I'm with you mostly. Fine, let's ignore that. The centerpiece of their most fully realized album. I mean, it is in the center of the record. It's technically the middle. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Literally the you, centerpiece. You, you, you can't really argue with that. Um, I, I don't know, though, man. Here's what I'm hearing on this. This is an album that, you know, it's, it's two guys. It's rolling in its curtain. But... This is an album that lyrically and musically 
is grappling with not only like the band and what they are and where they are and and their issues, but primarily it's about Roland's grief, his sadness, and that that is the undercurrent that is running through here. And when you get to Rivers of Mercy, the grief that he's experiencing, like his his inward pain that he's expressing to us, all of a sudden. I'm guessing this song was written during the the Black Lives Matter George Floyd protests. He's kind of absorbing this grief from the African American community and the protests that are that are going on in the world, and then sort of inserting himself in that. And then all of a sudden, you have George Floyd and Roland Orzabal's personal pain, and those things are kind of meshed together. They're intertwined in this song. And I find that deeply troubling because those are two very different things. And I don't know what other, what, what purpose could it serve to include sound bites from the George Floyd protests in the beginning of this song, other than to sort of co-op that pain and that grief. And then instantly you have it compared side by side with, with what Roland is, is experiencing. I, it just, it rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. It rubs me the wrong way too. I'm almost offended. <laughs> I no, I shouldn't say almost, I am offended by the way the song at least starts off. I just, and, and they've talked about in interviews that they say, yeah, that's a actual clip from one of the protests after George Floyd was murdered. Um, and not to wrap myself <laughs> into this, but, you know, George Floyd was murdered in the same neighborhood. I used to live in, in Minneapolis, just blocks away from where I used to live. Um, so that tragedy and that awful murder that occurred that summer, um, you know, especially during the middle of this like global pandemic where we're already just all feeling awful and isolated. And then this happens it I, I i i like the idea that they wanted to maybe shine a light onto this and talk about it but this is just the absolute i think wrong way or at least icky way to do it mm-hmm. um and just the way the the you know you have that sound clip and then just the lyrics it's like well the streets are burning there's trouble in the town <laughs> i it, it it it's offensive um and you know i don't think i know it wasn't their intention to be that i know that they wanted to do something that was meaningful here mm-hmm. and to but it it is an example i think of just like a wealthy cis white dude who doesn't have to worry about these things trying to relate in just those first opening seconds of the song and his privilege is really showing here and it kind of pisses me off <laughs> to, to put it bluntly um you know this is somebody that i've always looked up to as far as a songwriter and even as a social figure um i think i learned a lot <laughs> about how to be a decent person as a kid you know other than like you know parents and teachers but like but from like reading roland orzable interviews as a kid and just knowing what his social conscious was and 
this is just very, very ill-advised. And um, it's just too bad. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I don't think Roland, you and I both, I mean, even, you know, now living in Milwaukee, like are living through lockdown and living through, you know, these kind of scary nights where they're having these curfews for the protests and the curfews essentially just being an excuse for them to arrest people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I suppose we don't need to get too into it, but um, I think it's also too soon. Like these wounds are still very fresh, even though, you know, justice prevailed, I guess, but mm-hmm. George Floyd still had to die. And I don't think he did. And I think we still need to be having this discussion Instead of just saying, well, we should just try to kumbaya, just understand each other a little bit more. It's like, yeah, we need to understand each other a little bit more, but it's not going to be by just like pretending there's this mythical place where we can all just get along, where we can just reach across the aisle and shake hands. Like, that's not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) No, I I, I agree with you completely. a lot in me. Um, That being said. I mean, if it weren't for those first that first minute, I would think Rivers of Mercy is a successful song, uh, a, a mm. beautiful song. They haven't written a ballad like this in a very long time. And it definitely ekes into like the woman in chains territory. And Steve, I know you're not a yeah, fan of I got woman in chains beef, <laughs> but but I also think the song doesn't overstay its welcome again. It's very restrained for them. And then we have the use of a gospel choir, which with the way the song starts, it's like, oh, shit, they're really going to explore <laughs> And luckily, yeah. they don't. Um, I think they use the choir very tastefully. Mm-hmm. It's just that first minute that I'll, I'll never be able to get past. I mean, <laughs> that is just... It's the first time I've ever, I think, been angry. <laughs> what if I made you a remix and it was and it was just this song, but with that stuff cut out of it? We'll just call it the Discourse from the Big Chair remix. I, I mean, I'd be down with that. I, <laughs> I Whenever I hear this, I listen to this album a lot. When I get to that point, it's just like, I just wish that that part of the song was gone. It shouldn't even be there. And if this is an album that's exploring his grief, like the lyrics are beautiful in a way if you view them in that context and not in this like well black lives matter but oh man we should just all we should all just get along like no like that's the wrong conversation to be having and it i just expected better from my boys yeah it's kind of a bummer too i mean it's not like you know rolling jumping on a track and you know shouting racial epithets or anything like that it's it's kind of a bummer because it's it's coming from a good place. It's just wrong, you know. And yeah, and maybe I'm being too hard on him for that. But um, yeah. but no, I, I think you need to be. I think we need to hold artists accountable. Um, it, what was that one video that was a Gal Gadot who did that video during lockdown? <laughs> Where she's saying "Imagine" or whatever. Is that the? Imagine all the rich people singing in their mansions. Yeah, that was great. Love that. I love when I'm stuck in my, you know, little apartment and I get to watch rich people with, you know, 
opulent pools and servants singing about how it's a bummer they can't go outside. In L.A., no less. <laughs> not in March in Wisconsin. And I'm not saying that this is that. Yeah, yeah. Because, again, I, you know, I do think that their intentions were good, but maybe just go through a few more drafts. Maybe, and, yeah, how many people did they play this for? They were just kind of like, okay, yeah, this is great. And why isn't this being brought up in, like, any reviews? Like, I'm surprised that people aren't, taking them to task for that that one moment in this record mm-hmm. uh it's yeah it's the worst 45 seconds on any tears for fears album there i said because it. you know what you, you you peel away the ill-advised you know george floyd stuff at the end of the day you still have wind chimes and you still have either, you know, a, a, a accordion or a wind organ, one or the other. I think you said it is an accordion officially, right? It was, yeah. And it was the hearing the, like, already being kind of like, Jesus, they're really doing that. They're really using this sound clip. They're, those are the lyrics. And then the wind chimes kicked in. I almost threw my headphones off the first time. I was like, this is, <laughs> I, I, I thought it was a joke. <laughs> I felt like it was a prank. And then yeah. and then it turns into this like very nice, like almost like Peter Gabriel, Kate Bush esque and Tears for Fears esque ballad that mm-hmm. is nice and has good sentiment. But yeah, uh, uh, I've said it five times already on this podcast, but just man, if it would wasn't for that intro. I would um, actually, Steve, it's the centerpiece of an album that feels like the most fully realized record tears for fears have ever made. So you're just wrong. Sorry. Are we, are we going to get any angry emails? I don't know. I, you know what? At the end of the day, tears for fears fans, you can at least agree that this is not the most fully realized record they've ever made. It's, it's, it's good. It's fine, but we're not going to go there. All right. Let's, uh, let's briefly touch on please be happy. A song, Again, that we've we've already talked about, and I mean we talked about it in 2017 or whenever the greatest hits came out, and again, I, not not knowing what it was at the time, really. Hmm. Yeah, I I think I consumed this one a little bit differently back when I first heard it years ago, because it it just it's a very sad somber song yeah well and we had no context i mean obviously the lyrics are very blatant mm-hmm. so you know it's about one person specifically but we didn't know at the time like maybe he was writing a song about himself maybe he was writing about one of his kids we didn't realize it was about his wife who had at that time alcohol related dementia and was slipping into a deep depression that was killing her literally mm-hmm. Yeah. And this song is about nothing else other than that. And it's probably for a band that's written a lot of sad songs. This is the saddest song they've ever recorded. Oh, yeah. It's it's a real gut punch. It's it's also interesting from a track listing standpoint too. the way that it's kind of I mean, it's back to back with Rivers of Mercy and Rivers of Mercy does inject a little bit of optimism and, and redemption into an otherwise pretty sad album and then they're like but actually <laughs> it's gotta smack you around with the with please be happy right afterwards dream about getting dropped in the rivers of mercy but uh come back to reality mm-hmm. 
And there's something very poignant too. I mean, the demo we heard five years ago was sung by Roland. And obviously he can't even, now that his wife has passed, he can't even sing the song. He can't even be in the studio to listen to it when they're doing the playthrough. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you have Kurt Smith singing lead. And that not only does he obviously know her, it's his friend's wife, but Caroline was his friend growing up too. So that's a lifelong friend of his that he's also lost. So this is a very real thing for him to be going through. Yeah. And, um, Doug Petty, who's their touring keyboard player, does some really nice things with like this like very melodramatic string arrangement, which I think works for the song. I don't think it comes off as like overly produced or cheesy. I think it like really tugs at you even more. Mm-hmm. And then the back alley uh, trumpet solo, which I just found out the other day, uh, is just a sample played on keyboards by Roland. Wow. Wow. Isn't that a It's pretty. That's kind of crazy. That's that's another thing, too. And I, I mentioned this with with no small thing, but there's points on this album where I don't know if it's just, you know, two dozen musicians crammed into a room and these soaring orchestral scores are all, you know, instruments or, or if it is just <laughs> Roland's like got this synth sound, but like yeah, I think that's it. Um, they pretty much played everything between Roland, Kurt, and Charlton Pettis, and there aren't a lot of session musicians on this album. It's a very small list of people playing on this record. So it's really just the, that core, the three of them. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like I said, like I, I don't think it really hit me back then, but there's a real gut punch on this album, and it's not one that I come back to just because it's such a heavy song and it's not like I don't appreciate it or love it, but man, it's a real downer. Yeah. We're definitely not going to hear it live. (laughs) No, ever, never. Absolutely not. No. Uh, But yeah, it's uh, I, I, I'm glad they kept it around because this is, it's a, it's a deeply personal album and I'm just, I'm just glad that they kept the song. And even if they had to, re-record parts of it. I like the new arrangement. I think it's it's a, it's a fuller sounding song and uh, I've, I've grown to appreciate it more. But hey, this leads us into Master Plan. Which this is a real... Uh, this, so this, this next section of the album, tracks eight and nine, this is the classic Tears for Fears bangers section. Yeah, this is the, the, uh, the filet. <laughs> The filet, baby. That's what I'm living for. And, and this is what I want. Not that I, again, that I don't love the singles. And I don't love other things in this record, but I, I just wanted like 20 tracks of this stuff, this track eight and nine stuff. That's, that's what was kind of brewing and, and bubbling in my head. Uh, talk to me about master plan. Uh, well, it, it, lyrically, I mean, it's probably, I think one of the more recent songs they've written, it's specifically a dig at their former management. Um, and not very subtle either. Um, yeah, a lot of the discussion around them recording a new album in the first place all those years ago was like they didn't want it to, people didn't want it to sound like the Beatles or they didn't want it to sound like everybody loves a happy ending. Like they wanted mm-hmm. it to be different and it's like, you guys got to go back to your roots. 
so they try that and it doesn't work out and now they're back doing what they do writing a song about hey screw you we can still write a good tune and it's going to be about you and it's going to sound like it came from everybody loves a happy ending and i love that <laughs> i love them for that yeah. uh, obviously this is a lot more electronic tinged uh it's not as mm-hmm. acoustic and or- orchestral based as everybody loves a happy ending but and i don't think that this is like necessarily just uh, a ripoff of that era not at all um but it harkens back to that and it's just here's what we can do and here's mm-hmm. what we're good at and it it's another song that's definitely grown on me i don't think it necessarily washed over me the first time i heard it but it didn't stick with me right away but subsequent listens it's uh yeah this is it's a, it's a killer track it's great um yeah. You know, I like the uh, there's oh, there's these themes that keep popping up of just like not having faith. And I think Rivers of Mercy, if it were been presented in a better way, and that's just personal opinion. But a lot of that song is like about trying to find faith that I think, you know, going through all these tragedies, he's struggling to find faith. And he still talks about that in the song. Does he really need it? I don't know. He's got a lot of rage. He says that too. So it's this battle of rage and faith that I think is sort of the hallmark of uh, their sound and style. And um, it comes through beautifully in the song. I think it does everything right. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a great track and it's, it's kind of buried here in the album, but yeah, don't, don't sleep on this one, especially it's, it's hard because I don't know when, when this song hits after rivers of mercy and please be happy, which kind of like, I don't know, they, they pull you in a, in one direction and <clears throat> master plan sort of starts to yank you in the other. But then, then this culminates with what I would say is the best song on this album. And it's one of my favorite tears for fear songs. And I feel like this is not a popular opinion shared by anyone, but I don't care. I think you agree with me that it's great, but let's, let's, I'm going to just going to play a a really quick clip here. I just want you guys to listen to like 10 seconds of this song. Listen to this. And let me tell you what's going on here. I love this. I love this. I love this. I love this. This is everything that I want. And it's just served up to me. The first full listen through of this album, yeah, I was struggling to process it. Honestly, was struggling to process it and figure out if I even liked it. But as soon as those like that drum intro kicked in, oh, I mean, my fist was in the air. <laughs> like, just I was jubilant, mm-hmm. just so happy and like so in love immediately with this song. Oh, the drums on this are huge. They're so good. So, so good. And let me tell you about the synth sounds that they're using here because it is a masterclass in pop music construction. This is literally every decade of, you know, electronic synth-driven pop music compressed into one perfect little three and a half minute jam. Everything about this, like, I mean, there's there's like that classic Tears for Fears sound from the 80s. There is 90s synth in here. That 
the, the, like the lead, the actual synth lead here, it sounds like something, it, it sounds like Sandstorm. It's the exact same synth sound as Sandstorm, which makes you go, well, this song must be, no, 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 no. It's good. It's great. It's great. And then on top of that, there's little flourishes throughout that are clearly drawn from contemporary pop music. So you're just watching like the full breadth of, of this music that they sort of pioneered and then the artists that they inspired and them kind of like reflecting that back. I wish this was the end of the album because it's it's perfect they could never record another song again and if this was the last song on the last album they ever recorded it would be this perfect final statement to me be too um i don't want to exaggerate too much but my initial thought after hearing the song for the first time other than wanting to immediately hear it again was like okay this was worth the 18 year wait Mm -hmm. just the song and I I imagine if they would have released this instead of that Bastille collaboration on the Greatest Hits album that would have we the story would have been a lot different but then again I'm glad they did I'm glad that this is an album track and not just a Greatest Hits bonus track mm -hmm. um, but my god yeah this is just it reminds me a lot um, of Going back to their other albums, this is sort of like the head over heels moment on this record. Yeah. Um, which head over heels could have ended songs from the big chair. And then it goes into listen, which is just sort of like almost this like palate cleansing, like, all right, you heard everything now just like relax. It's like the end of a yoga session where you get to do that meditation thing and try not to mm -hmm. fall asleep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, end of night, just, I, if they release one more single, I hope that this is it because I feel like this could actually, the album's already been a success. It's already been a commercial critical success. I didn't oh, yeah. think I'd be saying that so soon. I mean, it might drop off the face of the earth in the next few weeks, but it's still far more successful than any album they've released since Seeds of Love, mm -hmm. which is amazing. I did not think that would happen. Um, but, you know, if they want to generate interest in album sales before they go back on the road, I could see them doing at least one more single. And my God, I hope it's the song. I yeah. just think that this is and it, I guess the record label that they're on Concord, they originally wanted to release this as the first single. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of like, well, no, we'd rather do the tipping point because we feel like that speaks to the album as a whole a lot better. And I agree with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I agree completely. And tipping point is. I mean, that's my second favorite cut on the album. It's still a great song, so no complaints. It was That was a great lead single, um, but this is like a gem that they kind of had hiding. And I think even the, I've had seen interviews, I've seen so many interviews with them over the past few months. They all are just sort of starting to bleed together. But this is the one song they say, yeah, well, you just kind of need a throwaway pop song on there somewhere, which is exactly what they said, like about the song Change on the Hurting. <laughs> it fits that role too but i don't know i don't why do they hate all my favorites <laughs> i don't it's not like they hate it like they hate mother's talk though i think they still yeah. obviously like it because they were very very picky about what went on to this record I and mean, they mm -hmm. had like 30 some songs to choose from so obviously this one still holds me it's also the i guess the oldest song on the album at least as far as like when it was written oh um, wow. 
So this could have even been hanging around at least as a song that was already written, you know, from the Everybody Loves a Happy Ending era. I'm speculating. I don't know that at all for sure, but um, it's at least one of the first songs they wrote when they, or at least Roland wrote when they decided they wanted to record new material. And I'm glad they held on to it. Yeah. Really glad. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, I, hoping against hope. I, I don't think they're going to play this live. It doesn't seem likely, but if they do, I will, I will be the happiest little boy. I think they will. I'm con. I feel confident. Um, oh. I, you know, take my demons off and just put this on if, if that's what it comes down to. But yeah, because uh, I think this would just be massive live. Just imagine those drums kicking in. Oh, can only hope June can't come soon enough, man. Mm-mm. Well, unfortunately, end of night is not the end of this album, which is kind of a mean thing to say about stay a perfectly fine song. It's it's fine. It's fine. It's whatever. It's it's fine. And it's kind of sad. It's it's sad and it's weird, but it's not sad in the same way the rest of this album is sad because it is one of these holdover tracks. And as you mentioned, it's kind of about it's it's about Kurt just thinking about leaving the band, but it it feels like it's from another era that isn't part of this album because it literally is, right? Right. Um but in the end, he decides to stay. He does. He stays. And it's kind of fun because you think that the, the album's going to end with the end of night song. Because, boy, doesn't that make sense? They go, no, we're going to stay. But then they go because it's done. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it almost acts like an addendum, I think. Mm-hmm. And I want to say they've even said as much in their interviews. Um, Kurt Smith always calls it like the the sorbet after the main course. Yeah, that makes sense. Which is a very... Um, one percenter thing to say. <laughs> this is this is though. I mean, really though, it is in line with the with their albums because they they do tend to have these, like you said, palate cleanser songs. Uh, they 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 don't normally end on a banger, so it's fine. I'll allow it. But we've talked about this song before on past episodes. You you can go listen to it. I don't think its placement on this album has changed. It's how I feel about it really, but yeah, go ahead. I do like the, the remix of this over the version that has been commercially released before. I think they dialed it back enough and it's, it sounds better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I do appreciate the production flourishes. It just, you know, doesn't, doesn't hit for me, but that's okay. Not, not every Kurt Smith jam can, can be my favorite song in the universe. So and I mean, it's not like, you know, you look at other albums, it's not like I'm going to be uh, jamming listen at a par- at a party anytime soon. Oh. Same with stay. What kind of parties are you going to? Because I will be. That's what I'm going to do. It's, that's like whenever we go to the bar and there's an internet jukebox and I try and play the prisoner. <laughs> yeah. Any party gets the prisoner. That's a banger. Today, Tears for Fears, randomly on social media posted something like, hey, what songs from The Hurting are you most looking forward to hearing on the new tour? And there's a clip of them playing the song The Hurting from like 1985. And everybody's like, oh, Pale Shelter, Mad World. Like, yeah, okay, well, they're going to play those. Man, if we get them to play The Prisoner in Detroit. Yeah, do I need to tweet at these guys? Like, come on, man. (laughs) Everyone in Detroit loves The Prisoner. Come on. (laughs) 
Oh my gosh. How, what if they opened with the prisoner? <laughs> Nothing can top it. You're done. That's it. We've, we've touched the hand of God. That's, that's all there is. Well, you know, I was, I was kind of complaining a little bit because I'm like, oh, it's been 18 years and I only got 10 tracks and I know half of them already. And, uh. but there's actually a few deluxe tracks that didn't make the official album unless you bought specific editions. So there's three songs here. There's Secret Location, which is on the UK and European deluxe editions. There's Let It All Evolve, which is from the Japanese deluxe edition. And Shame, which is uh, from the Japanese deluxe edition. And I believe all three of these, or or two out of three of these, are, are from... Are on the the target bonus, right? Yeah, two out of three, and two out of three that are bad. Hmm. <laughs> so, so only the UK and European deluxe edition they got the good one, the Jackknife Lee song. Yeah, and that's not to say. I mean, that's the thing with bonus tracks. If they weren't good enough to make the album, that usually means they're probably not that great. Um, I've never gotten when the two bonus tracks came out for everybody loves a happy ending. It's like, Oh yeah, I'm fine with these not being on the actual album and the bonus tracks, at least the ones that show up on this target exclusive and throughout most bonus track editions that are out there. There's so many versions of this album. It's insane. I, I can't even believe that the hardest thing for me to find is just the black vinyl version, which is the one that I got. <laughs> The rarest of them all, yeah. <laughs> um, but so, I guess I you haven't listened to the bonus tracks, but I can kind of just talk about. Yeah, them. give me a, give me a run through. Um, the uh, let it all evolve is interesting. It, I mean, it was recorded obviously around that time where they're working with all these heavyweight producers and songwriters. I think this is from the Sasha Scarbeck sessions again, but there, it sounds very um. Are you familiar with the producer Ben Gross? Yes. It sounds like a Ben Gross production to start out. Like the way the acoustic guitar sounds, it has like a very, it sounds like a late 90s, early 2000s fuel song. Or filter, sorry, not fuel. <laughs> the, the other F band with a string of hits in, you know, 1999 to 2002. And it's, it's what I imagine what Tears for Fears would have sounded like if, if Curtin's Roland were still together and they were working with like Ben Gross or some other hot shot producer of the day for some alt rock producer in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, mm -hmm. So it's weird that that's the direction that they would have maybe went into. Um, and the song, it's fine. It reminds me of just like a B-side. Um, yeah. and that's kind of how I think of these songs. They sound more like B-sides than they do like actual album tracks. Uh, Shame, Cry Heaven is very deliberately an attempt to kind of get like um, a roaring kind of battle. It's sort of like what I think they did with Rivers of Mercy. I think this is what they were trying to do is get another one of those like stadium anthem, but like quiet if that makes sense that doesn't make any sense it, it's mm -hmm. not great i don't like it um i do have some good news for you though steve ben gross he actually produced filter and fuel so you were right on, on both you're good either way sounds like all those jackass bands from the late 90s yeah it's it's good and if you're trying to figure out who ben gross is 
basically, and, and I don't even know what else he's done. I just know like the type of music he does, which is that post grunge alt rock. That's not quite new metal. So all that stuff in between. So that's your filter, your fuel. Um, you know, it's, it's basically rock songs that got played on the pop stations. That's been gross. And that's what let it all evolve. Sounds like, um, and then there's the Jackknife Lee song, which the one time I got a tweet from Kurt while they were recording all these songs was in 2015 Oof. when he tweeted uh, from them being at this like studio. And I forgot the location, I think somewhere in Northern California. And I looked it up. It's like, wait, that's Jackknife Lee's studio. And I tweeted, I was like, are you guys working with Jackknife Lee? And he's like, can neither confirm nor deny. Well, now it's confirmed. <laughs> so you broke the story. 2015 and two people liked my tweet. Wow. Um, but th- of the three bonus tracks, uh, Secret Location kind of slaps. I actually really like it. Okay. Doesn't sound very Tears for Fearsy other than it's clearly them singing, but like lyrically it doesn't sound like anything they would have ever written. It has a very... It goes from sounding like 70s to almost like um, chill wave and then to like 90s kind of quiet lounge club music. Um, But it's fun. It's actually like if you're going to seek out any of these bonus tracks, the best you can do unless you have the actual CD is go onto YouTube and listen to this like very compressed version of it. But um yeah, it almost sounds like a like a zero seven kind of thing. If you remember them, or like mm-hmm. just one of those like chill wave. I mean, not like chill wave as we know from like the late two thousands or early two thousand tens, but calm trues. That's the chill yeah. wave. <laughs> and and maybe that's what they were going for. I mean, that would have been a hot sound in mm-hmm. twenty fifteen for a very short window. Um, but yeah, I actually really like it would have not fit on the album at all. And I can't imagine what an entire Tears for Fears album would have sounded like if that was the direction they were heading in. Uh, but it's a yeah, it's it's nice. I like Secret Location. Seek it out. All right. Find the Secret Location. So two duds and a banger. That's our assessment of the bonus tracks, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe listen to all, well, listen to Let It All Evolve, maybe just to tell me if I'm right about the uh, Ben Gross comparison. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm going to give it a listen for sure. All right. Well, I can't believe this episode's done, man. This is, I just feel like we've been building this for so long. I, I hope the episode lived up to the hype, just like the album. But <laughs> it did. It it did because there was no hype to to really build it up. So you know, it's <laughs> yeah, and just and uh, forgive me if I already mentioned this, but it was hard to uh, my initial reaction to it. I think was just because it had been such a long wait, and I had been anticipating for so long that after the first listen, it was kind of like, oh, that's it. And it's also like their shortest album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think by like three minutes, um, but. I am still listening to it constantly. Yeah. Um, and I th- it's a, it's a grower, not a shower at the end of the day. That's really the best way to describe it. I think. And everybody loves a happy ending. My God, that's a shower of an album. And I oh, real shower something about this new album cycle release. That's making me upset is that 
there's a lot of hate out there for everybody loves a happy ending, I think. Uh, based on reviews and even like Roland and Kurt, they're still saying they liked the album, but it's like, yeah, it just didn't have the depth of a real Tears for Fears record. And I'm just like, no, it was great. It's still it great. Is. It's a great and album. It's, and it's probably going to be re-released on vinyl soon. That's actually an oh. official statement. So. That's an official statement? Oh, thank God. We've been we've been clamoring for that forever. So and Talked about in Classic Pop magazine, so. That's good. Uh, very excited for that. Probably won't come out till like 2024 for the 20th anniversary, but it's on the horizon. And, yeah. uh, but I think that tipping point already is probably going to be considered. I think it's going to go down in history as like a fondly remembered album and, you know, not ignored part of their catalog. It'll be interesting to see the shows, but, um, you know, people are actually buying this record and listening to it. So yep. it won't be a stadium full of people sitting on their hands waiting for head over heels. I think they'll get up for my demons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As will we all. Uh, yeah, I I agree with you. I, I think that it's sort of solidified its its legacy. I was a little bummed out because they've done so much press, which has been lovely, but yeah, there, there is this kind of underlying narrative in the reviews where, you know, they talk about the band's highs and then the oh and the lows in the 90s and then they get back together for a disappointment. And it's like, no, it's disappointing to you, maybe. These people didn't even listen to Everybody Loves a Happy Ending. That's the other thing. You didn't, you didn't even listen to it. You didn't listen to it, Mr. Rock and Roll Critic. Give it a spin. It might change your mind. It's a banger. It's an absolute banger. I think that was like, that may have been the tipping point for me going from like appreciative semi fan to fandom is, is the, the everybody loves a happy ending episode of this exact podcast. So there you go. Yeah. And I'll say tipping point will probably never knock everybody loves a happy ending off of the pedestal. I have it on, but it'll, it'll be in the same company at least. Yeah. Good album. All right. Well, for better, or for worse, you're still not rid of us yet internet because we're going to be back we're going to see tears for fears we're going to see them in june so we'll do another episode after this one you know hopefully this episode covering this album was our end of night and uh maybe june will be our stay <laughs> and take take that any way you want to i suppose but yeah it's uh it's been one heck of a journey so thank you for taking me on this journey with you stephen coleman thanks for joining me on the journey of course all right, we'll be back in a couple months. We'll see you.